0: Thank you. And welcome to You're Going to Die, the podcast. I always want to say welcome to another episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast. But I just want to acknowledge that this might be your first time. Although it still is another episode. Even if you're only hearing the show for the first time, this is another episode. And worth mentioning. Because you can go listen to the other episodes. And there's a lot of good ones. But for now, don't worry about that welcome. Glad you're here. If you're joining us for the first time, and if you are listening to another episode and have listened to a bunch of others, thank you for doing that and welcome back. You're Going to Die, the podcast, your creatively conscious mortality podcast, having conversations, hopefully inspiring ones, meaningful ones, heartfelt ones, with people in the world who are, in their own unique ways, engaging with mortality creatively and uh you know it's some version of what I think the nonprofit does I hope you get this out of listening I hope you get anything worthwhile out of listening but one thing that I hope you get is um I guess maybe a deepening of your aliveness right now and maybe inspiration from our guest um I hope you feel like understood actually a bit. I hope some kind of light um reveals something. It gets it gets shown on something suddenly. Uh that being said, I <laughs> I'm not sure I'm in the place to do any of that for you. <laughs> this no, I'm all right. I'm all right. It's just been kind of a hard uh a little bit of a hard day, you know, being in the midst. Um being in the midst, being in the dark, uh, really feeling that lately. And which is like how it goes sometimes. It's just this normal, natural cycle of things. And I don't know why it comes and goes, but I just know that I've been in it a bit. But one thing that I've kind of been practicing with my uh, articulations of, of these, these times for myself is, um, that I don't misunderstand. I I thought this, I thought, I don't misunderstand it. I don't misunderstand how hard it is right now. That doesn't mean that I understand it and that I can make any meaning out of it, any heads or tails, but like the personal dark parts, I, I want to not misunderstand And, um, and, and then a little more is like, I don't want to be, feel betrayed by these things. I want to have like the understanding that it's life and, and, you know, just to like even get further away from it accidentally, but it's still, it's words that are emerging for me. The idea that like billions of people have gone through so much suffering, death, loss, gone, being forgotten. And here we are in the middle of our time of aliveness and my time of aliveness and I want to at least try to stay in the place of paying attention from not misunderstanding. That's it. That's it. Can I read you this poem actually that I've been that I've been thinking about relates? It's a little bit hard to swallow. I'm not gonna lie. Like if you're having a hard time, you could just be like fuck this. Um, and what the hell, I didn't need to tune into this during this dark time of my life to hear someone tell me that there's gifts available here. And I'm not saying that I want to be clear. I want to say that I don't misunderstand the darkness, maybe like you. This poem is called the Dakini Speaks by Jennifer Wellwood. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here or if we truly haven't noticed let's wake up and notice look everything that can be lost will be lost it's simple how could we have missed it for so long let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings but please let's not be so shocked by them let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us. And she keeps it with ruthless impeccability to a child. She seems cruel, but she is only wild and her compassion, exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway. And the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. I like this right now. I think the first time someone shared it with me I was like, nope, no thanks. And then I I had to go find it from them because I wanted to read it because it it was it was like echoing the words that I've been feeling. And I love the like let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings. Like it makes room for that. But why are we betrayed? Why do we feel betrayed? by these inevitabilities, everything goes away. It is hard medicine. It's hard for me, but I, I needed I needed it right now. So I wanted to share it with you. Now, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Today's guest, this episode's guest, and it's today no matter where you are. <laughs> so today's guest uh, is an old friend of mine. Allison Davis is a television writer. Her credits include and are not limited to American horror story on FX and Netflix, the underground railroad on Amazon prime and David makes man on Oprah Winfrey network and, uh, HBO max. She has written, produced and generally made Mary for Google, This American Life, and Story Corp, NPR, and PBS, and on and on and on. And she holds an MFA in Dramatic Writing from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. She generally uses her powers for good, and this sometimes backfires her words. I don't know that there's more to say, although I wanted to talk about a project she worked on that I didn't list yet called the Equal Justice Initiatives' uh, Lynching in America. It's a report uh, that the Equal Justice Initiative did, and I think most important, I guess, access point for you checking it out, and as usual, I'll I'll link it all up. I'll link it all up in the liner notes, but I really, really strongly recommend any of the stuff, actually. I'm, I'm not really watching... American Horror Story. Okay, guys? I just, I can't. Her episodes aren't out yet. Maybe I'll watch them then. I'm not quite ready to watch that show at all. Uh, (laughs) I have enough living horror in my life. Uh, (laughs) No. Okay. Dramatic much? Um, No, I just can't watch it, but maybe I'll watch it for her episodes. Um, I have watched The Underground Railroad on Amazon Prime, which I highly recommend, and a started David Makes Man, which I also recommend. But easier uh, recommendation, like really important, I would say, is checking out the Equal Justice Initiatives, uh, Lynching in America, Confronting the Legacy of Racial Terror. Uh, There's a report that they did uh, to learn about lynching in America. Uh, It's a really great resource. And there's like lesson plans on the website for students. All this stuff is free, but there's also a bunch of uh, interviews, generations affected by the history of lynching in America. And I highly, highly recommend that you take some time to check out those videos. I think there's maybe six in total. Um, I couldn't not watch them all. And so that's just another uh, project that Allison's worked on. So we t- we touch on all the things throughout this interview. Hopefully, you'll keep track. There is one thing, one point where she says uh, she's talking about writing, and she says, you know, how do we how do we relate uh, to people's storytelling um, and the general storytelling maybe not being as accessible as the like real personal version of sharing stories from our lives. And she she says, Sarah, she says people know Sarah, people get that. And that's my wife. So, you know, when she's saying that and she states that that's what she's meaning, she's meaning that's my personal, like one of my personal bits that, that the sharing of and the experience of when it comes to like relationships would give you a good sense, uh, an access point, like a place to connect because it's a personal thing, and um, and kind of how that works with writing and writing stories and writing like from the human experience. So that's just a little note to keep, keep, uh, keep, keep ready for. Keep, 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 keep. Okay, I think that's it. I, I don't, I, I just want the, I just want to let the interview, the conversation do its thing. So thanks again for listening to this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Allison Davis.
1: When this year started, when the pandemic started, I was in a writer's room on a show called David Makes Man. And we were writing season two, so we were in a physical room, you know, and and March, and then mm. the studio Warner Brothers was like, "Hey, so let's let's work from home next week, just for like a week, mm. you know," <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, and then we all went into Zoom, uh, the, the virtual writers room, which is you know we're all in, in the Zoom room, and mm-hmm. I actually felt extremely lucky because this particular writers room for David Makes Man. Uh, we are all very close and mm-hmm. we had worked on season one. So we were in season two and in season one, we all got very close, like, like a family. You know, we talk all the time. We hang out mm-hmm. all the time. We are on group threads and uh, group texts and um, having those, being able to check in with someone every day and having those talking heads mm-hmm. and, and people who I know and trust uh, and love really saved me you know, just, be, just mm. seeing people every day, even though it was on a mm-hmm. screen. Um, and in this particular room, the show, I don't know if you had a chance to, to check the show out a lot, but the show yeah. really deals with trauma and childhood trauma. So I think one of the mm. reasons we got so close is because in discussing the story of the show and in, and in you know, breaking the, the season, all we're all taught, we're all talking about our own personal trauma and our own personal childhood traumas. And mm. so everybody, and you know, that's the kind of thing that brings you really close. So when this happened, the groundwork was already laid for us to really be real about what we were all going through. Um, Mm -hmm. Probably the like a safe space in the truest sense of the term. And a lot of workplaces say that Mm -hmm. and they don't mean that shit. This really Mm -hmm. is a safe space, was a safe (laughs) space. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was really, and I didn't realize until it ended how important it was just to have that face-to-face check-in. Every day in dealing mm-hmm. with that isolation during quarantine, especially during those mm-hmm. first months that were so terrifying and nobody knew what was going on. Yeah. Um, totally. And, you know, and the, there was like George Floyd uh, happened, and that was also really wonderful. It's almost everyone in the writers' room was black. And so being able to show up every day to a place where other people understood and there was space to grieve Mm -hmm. where my showrunner was like, if you want to take the day off, you can, if you want to go protest, Mm. you can, like if you, you know, some people Mm -hmm. wanted to protest on different days and she was like, all right, you know, we'll start a little later tomorrow, whatever. Um, As opposed to, you know, I've definitely worked in other places where I'm the only or one of few black people there and going to work. And it's like total business as usual. And there is no room for grief or discussion or rage or any of those, you know, very real and complex emotions. And, yeah. and even if there is, it's not safe, you know, you're like, I'm not going to talk about mm-hmm. this with you people, you know, um, no. No. like <laughs> this is not, this is not the place for it. So it, mm-hmm. it really, really, uh, it's kind of saved my life in a lot of ways to, mm. to have, you know, these little touch points of, of interaction. So that was really wonderful. And, and I think there were a lot of friends also, especially other single friends that were, you know, much like this person I was telling you about before that were really conscious about checking in on each other, sending each other things, sending, we sent each other flowers, we sent each other, mm-hmm. you know, uh, candles and, and shower things and lotion and things like take care of yourself, take care of like, mm-hmm. you know, making sure everyone yeah. was taking care of. Uh, each other and that you know that lights that silver lining of feeling how much people were recognizing and making the effort to show up for one Mm -hmm. another um, was really special and I and you know I'll never forget that I'll never forget the Mm. people who did extend that that grace and feeling like even though we're so out of control and I don't know what's happening, I can do this. <laughs> you know, like yeah, I can totally chop off some flowers on your doorstep or I can write you a letter mm-hmm. and send it in the mail. Um,
0: yeah, it's so good to hear it was that way. I think I had this like assumption you were going to say, you know, we were together so much in the writing room and then, and then I'm like writing always has this solitary inclination to it in my experience and maybe that's more like when you're working on a book alone but you're working on this project with people in a writing room and that it wasn't like suddenly you're sent to your own home space to do work and you lost that it actually is carried over and it's what helped you and it's it's so special to hear it put that way yeah I kind of expected you to say like, and I lost that, you know, like we got removed from that. But the reality is like you'd formed the connections enough in the work, in the room. And that it was important actually too, that there was like authentic vulnerability sharing in the work. And so you created this community. You had community exactly. to stay tapped into. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. And I, I actually, now that I'm thinking about it, my, it's funny for the first few months, I was, I know a lot of people were really freaking out and I was actually kind of okay. And I think part of that is because I work from home so much when I'm not in a room, I am working from home or even when I'm in a room, you know, we might be in the room for, you know, for a few months and then we're off writing. And when you write, you know, I, I Mm -hmm. usually work from home or like a coffee shop or whatever. Um, so it wasn't, my life wasn't terribly different than it had been before. Like, I think there are a lot of people who were Mm -hmm. really dependent on like, you know, going into the office or, you know, again, kids and all that stuff like people's lives got upended and mine was just kind of like oh, okay yeah. <laughs> you know like I know I yeah. know this drill <laughs> um it was also yeah. interesting because um I remember how can I put this because I remember talking to a friend about this and and both of us have struggled with depression and and feeling like the world was finally sort of on our level <laughs> <laughs> it was like almost yeah. a sense of relief. Now you know what it's like. A little yeah. bit. It was almost a sense yeah. of relief. And, and because, you know, when you're in a depressive episode, there's the depression and then there's like the guilt that's on top of that of not doing enough, of not being mm-hmm. productive. I can't get out of bed. I can't feed myself. Like, oh my gosh. And knowing that the world is moving on without you, you know, and feeling like mm-hmm. time is slipping by your hands and feeling like... You know, like I, I'm a terrible person and, you know, all these things that, that happen when you're in an episode. And then when the whole world was there, when the world stopped, it was like, oh, I don't have to perform. (laughs) I don't have to be productive. Mm. I don't, every, everybody's staying in bed all day. (laughs) We're all all drinking a bottle of wine, you know?
0: Damn good experience to stay in bed and drink. Yeah.
1: And it was kind of like, it was a combination of like, well, yeah, welcome. (laughs) Now you understand. Mm Um, and Mm -hmm. also just feeling like, like that pressure was kind of off and also feeling like I'm uniquely prepared for this. Like I also felt like, like (laughs) I can actually totally handle this. Like I know what it is to be isolated. I know what it is to be in my house and not see anybody for Mm -hmm. a few days, you know, like all of these Mm -hmm. things that people are like, I don't know if I can take this. It was like, You know, that the Bane and Batman thing, like (laughs) I was born in the darkness, (laughs) molded by it. You merely adopted it. (laughs) Like it was like kind of that feeling. Um, Yes.
0: Cancer (laughs) patients that I I do some work with uh, is similar, you know, and I think it was an emotional experience as much as it was like the immune like compromise, needing to be isolated, needing to be home on chemo, radiation. But it would come up a lot in the groups, you know, this idea that it was like, welcome to my reality and i think that there's a percentage of our you know community in the world that it's an emotional version of that like you describe mm-hmm. how old is that for you like the like you say having depression episodes like does do you does that like connect to when you were younger does it feel like part of your more of your adulthood is it like an old experience
1: i didn't realize until i was Older until grad school, actually, and Mm -hmm. I had gone through a a bad breakup. I was in grad school. I was very far away from from what I considered home at the time, and Mm -hmm. having a hard time getting work done. And you know, in school they have like free count, like you go to like five therapy sessions free or whatever. So I went, and then talking to the woman, I was just like describing my life to her, and she's looking at me. (laughs) In a way that I'm pretty sure they
2: tell <laughs> that you moment. that
1: they tell you in like therapist school <laughs> that you're not supposed to look at people, <laughs> don't
2: look
1: at <laughs> you know, like, oh, um, yeah. and, and that, and I was like, oh, is that, you know, like you don't, you don't work from bed. Is that weird? And again, I'm a writer, so I can mm. do like, I can pull my laptop mm-hmm. into bed. And I was, and I was, I was writing, I was like, I didn't get out of bed today, but it's okay because, you know, I knocked out 15 pages and she was yeah she was like, yeah, that's not really normal. And I was like, it's not, Mm -hmm. (laughs) is that weird?
2: Um,
0: Like the first time someone would call it out. I mean, it was like the first time you did therapy.
1: Was that the first time I did therapy? I had done it before after another, another really uh, bad breakup Mm -hmm. and it didn't take, Uh, (laughs) but this is the first time I really, I like got in, I was like, okay, I need to like deal with this. Sort of thing. So yeah. Again, I now realize I've I've always I've always Since i was a child escaped into my head i've always Mm -hmm. read books i was you know a very voracious reader like most writers are growing up and that was Mm a hundred percent how i got out of my life um yeah and and i started writing very young and you know you're just using your imagination it's like we don't have to be here Mm (laughs) If <laughs> We don't want to, we can go anywhere. We can go to space. We can be a detective. Like, you know, where do you mm-hmm. want to go? And, and disappearing into a story is, you know, probably the greatest joy, the greatest South, um, that I can think of. Again, now that I'm older and therapized, I was like, Oh, I was dissociating, <laughs> You know, there yeah, are, like, large chunks say. of my childhood. Yeah,
0: right? There's, yeah. like, large... I don't remember three years of my life Absolutely, I was writing short Absolutely. stories.
1: Absolutely. There's <laughs> large chunks of my, my childhood... Um, totally. ...that, like, I do not remember. And sort of... And there's mm. also very much, like, a need to... Everything is a story. Everything's a narrative. Like, there's... How I look at the world and understand the world is very, like... It becomes... It, there's a story. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, I kind of have to... Like, I don't understand something until i usually you know write it down i journal like crazy again that's i think most writers probably do because um, i don't know yeah. what's happening until i've written it down and then and then i make sense of it um and the same happens yeah. in my work when i'm writing a script i don't really know what it's about until i've written it and then i read it and mm-hmm. i'm like oh this is what i'm dealing with you know mm. um and there's there's a, a a thing that happens. I have so many answers to this question. Um there's there's a thing that happens. Good, good. <laughs> um Keep it as you know also as a, a writer that the the magical mm-hmm. beautiful sweetest spot the runners high of when you are no longer, when the characters start talking to each other and the and the story mm-hmm. starts telling itself and you're just taking dictation, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Um Mm -hmm. when
1: like you really kind of get humming and then and it's not there is no like well what happens next it's like what happens next is what happens (laughs) and Mm -hmm. you can and you're just going i'm just paying attention yeah i'm just writing it down uh what the imaginary people in my head are saying that's and Mm -hmm. and i think that is due to
0: i mean do you feel that it's imaginary sorry do you feel that they're imaginary people i mean do you have moments where you're like no i for sure tapped into somebody else does it ever feel that way? I mean, especially with some of your work, it's like,
1: I mean, I think it's different versions of mm-hmm. myself. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's a combination of different versions of myself and listening to people a lot and under—and just and physically actually listening to people, you know, whether it be,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, I, I, when I was at story I interviewed probably hundreds of people, um, and also listening to people in my life. I eavesdrop a lot, like at restaurants and stuff, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. but the thing is, it's all, it's, you know, in order to become people, it's, it's tapping into the emotionality. And this was what I was going to say before is that, um, if you're living like I, I am fortunate in the fact that I've had a very, I think, and most people would consider, and I consider, like a very vibrant life. I've had a lot of experiences. I've lived in a lot of cities. I've had a lot of careers. Um, I've been mm-hmm. in a lot of different sort of circles um, and have, you know, very, very diverse friends, not just in, you know, race and ethnicity, but also in uh, financial standing and areas of the country or areas of the world. And. Different backgrounds and um, the emotionality. So, living life and paying attention and being in tune with the emotionality of all the experiences that happen to you—that's what we tap into mm-hmm. when we're telling a story. And I always use the mm-hmm. example of Moonlight, um, which is a movie. Uh, did you see that movie? I did. <laughs> Brilliant movie, Oscar, Oscar-winning uh, film. And I've had the great experience of working under the the, uh, two writers, uh, Barry Jenkins and and Terrell Alvin McCraney. Watching that movie, I and the majority of people who watched it are not gay, did not grow up poor in South Florida. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) <laughs> you know, you don't have to be black, you don't have to be any of these things, you don't have to, mm. but you know what it is to be heartbroken, you know what it is mm-hmm. to love someone who doesn't love you back, you know what it is to be terrified yeah. to to tell your truth, you know, mm-hmm. so that emotionality, that's what resonates with all of us, that emotional truth mm. in storytelling, that's what's real. Yeah. You know, so when I'm writing a character or I'm writing a story, that's what I have to tell. Ta- I don't have to have the experience of that person or I don't have to become that sure. person that that imaginary person in my head. all I have to do is understand how they're feeling, and that's what's real. Mm. Do I feel like the person is real no yeah. well. <laughs> but that the connection I have with them and I'm hoping to have with the viewer um that's extremely real
0: mm. yeah I, you know I'm thinking of your uh your episode of the underground railroad <laughs> um getting a little emotional it <laughs> actually too but it's like i i think you're right you know i really believe in what you're saying but i also whew, boy there's some more work to do to get to the specifics uh-huh. of making something like that story real uh-huh. and in the realist ways that it is actually true, you know it's like it's a it it's based on a book, but it's based on like a reality in history uh-huh. and and in some way still that's lived through uh-huh. and um, I just want to acknowledge that sure, the access point, the empathy, the sensitivity, like that shared experience of like heartbreak is a way to connect uh-huh. and so then get like understanding, but it takes something else I think in your work. And I don't even know what I'm talking about. Cause I don't, I, I don't, I can't even imagine what it took to put an episode, like the third, that third episode of the underground railroad. I can't imagine what it took to like, get that into being, not even like just your work, but all the work, uh-huh. but, but acknowledging that it takes a lot of skill and like years of working in the way you have to not just be like i get heartbreak and terror (laughs) but like put it into other like living human beings i mean watching that it's like it's and i really mean this like all the episodes that i've watched the three including yours that one really I, i mean i knew it was yours but it really struck me in the complexity, the complexity of the characters in that episode. And I'm probably getting a little deep into like another conversation, even talking about how much went into that. But first, I want to acknowledge you for that. It's not just your understanding of like heartbreak and the emotional experience of a human being. It's also like a lot of skill and a lot of good writing and a lot of years of doing it. Like that could create something like that visceral and moving and real, you know? Thank
1: you. Thank you. Um, when I was at one of my, (laughs) no, I'm just, I'm reflecting. Um, and I also wanted to share with you when I was at, uh, when I was in grad school, I went to NYU and studied dramatic writing, uh, at Tisch Edward Albee, Mm -hmm. the, um, playwright, uh, came and spoke with us and his the lasting advice that he gave us was to write what hurts because that's how you know you're telling the truth
0: And now a word from our sponsor, the Death Deck, a surprising game of lively conversation. I've got my own Death Deck here. I always do. You know, I like to keep things real and present and close by when I do this. Okay. So, you know, it's really coming from the heart in the moment. And I do want to speak from there, like genuinely about the Death Deck, thanking them for supporting the podcast and... You know, you might think, well, it's a sponsorship. You know, what are they getting out of it? They're getting something. So it's an exchange of getting things. But I know that mostly what I want to do in the world with this work is partner with other organizations and companies and people that are doing really fun, exciting, interesting, heartfelt, meaningful things in the world. And the death deck is that. So... You can get your own copy of the Death Deck at thedeathdeck.com and use our code YG2D to get $5 off. Don't let the cards frighten you. The Death Deck is designed to be played multiple times with family and friends. It can be customized to have conversations you'd like to have. And if you think certain players might send you therapy bills after playing highly personal or trigger-filled questions, be sure to pull those cards out before playing. Like, you can remove the things that are really intense. And I love the death and dying conversation. I love the, like, pushing up against the edge and the having fun and laughing and then the, like, room for grief and the tears. And the Death Deck is a game that has all those options. The Death Deck is for entertainment purposes only. And answers players provide are not intended to be legally binding. They feel everyone should have discussions with their healthcare providers and family about their end-of-life wishes regarding treatment and care. And they hope playing the game will inspire you to prepare a living will, an advanced directive, and all those other legal documents you've been avoiding. So again, it's a version of this game being in your life in a way that lets you engage with the hard parts of being mortal, the fun parts of being mortal, the organizational parts of being mortal, all the things. So again, go to thedeathdeck.com, use our discount code YG2D, and get yourself $5 off your own death deck. Remember, you're going to die. Might as well play a fun game about it before you do. That's a tagline that I made up. What do you think? Earlier this week during the dark days that I've been living through, you know, it's not, I don't mean to be dramatic, but you know, just, (laughs) I do mean to be dramatic and I mean it. It's just the harder days, you know, you've got your own, but I was in mine. I'd just gone to the hospital and had spent a few hours going room to room to sit with cancer patients and listening to their stories that led to them being in these beds. And I left the hospital just feeling the intersection of my own personal life and my hard experience in in whatever ways. And also like my loved ones who are going through stuff and feeling that and where that meets all these other people that I know through the hospital, through the cancer patient workshops, through the grief workshops, through the prison program workshops, through all that space and the density of that little intersection. Just feeling all that. And sitting in my car, I got an email, like the kind of email that I just needed to get right then. And it was an email from Karis, Karis Taylor. And Karis wrote me to say how much the live open mics mattered to her years ago when she first walked into the space at the Lost Church where we used to do the show. And she acknowledged what it meant to be met her dark parts, her grief to have it all met there in that fragile, vulnerable, fleeting moment of the open mic nights, how we would just all be so mortal there, maybe more mortal there than anywhere. And she acknowledged that the podcast now is offering her some similar medicine in that way. But what she wanted to do, and she wrote about this and sent an attachment, a recording. What she wanted to do is she wanted to deal with a different dark place that she's in now, a uniquely dark place. And she knew that all the years of absorbing, maybe other people's sharing at the open mics and listening to the podcast and the guest and all that, she said she wanted to do something different than absorbing. She wanted to create something. And so she sat in an empty room somewhere in the world and played this song. And I want to share it with all of you. So thank you, Karis, for sending this like I needed. It's so wild how our dark parts meet other people's dark parts. And somehow just that meeting, that less aloneness is what we need. It didn't take anything away where I was suddenly free and had moved past all my dark bits, but it met me. It met me right where I was at, just like I needed. And hopefully for you listeners, it does that too. Hopefully this podcast does that. And also keep in mind, if you have that compulsion to record something, just click record, share a poem, a song, a story, your feelings about dying, grief, your feelings about the podcast, whatever it is, just record it. Keep it under five minutes and send it over to us at pod at YG2D.com. We're here and listening.
2: Hello, Ned. My name is Caris, and I am going through a hard time right now. And poetry, prose, and everything goes, both the live events and the Zoom events that I've gone to have helped me in the past. This new grief feels different and I need to figure out ways of moving through it. So I'll try this. (sighs) Yeah, so I'm I'm recording in an empty room. (laughs) That's why it sounds like it's in an empty room. story ends and who dies await I don't want to know don't want to hold on to something that I'm gonna have to let go but I can't tell my heart not to fear not to hope not to hold we're alive so we lie awake at night in the dark
1: Stories, more than anything else in the world, I believe absolutely has the power to change hearts and minds. I see it happen all Mm -hmm. the time. It does. Mm -hmm. Um, Because stories are are, are everything. It's how, I mean, I told you when I was a child, it's how I I navigated the world. It's how we all do. History is a story. Mm -hmm. Religion is a story. Mm -hmm. Um, The Mm -hmm. newspaper, you open the newspaper, it tells you the story, right? Um, Every. It's all, we all have these narratives in which we're the main characters and trying to understand what it is to be human. And storytelling, the stories we tell ourselves, the stories we tell each other is the only way that we, we can do that. Um, that said, it's very difficult to get someone to care about 500,000 refugees. Yeah. Almost impossible, really, right? We see this all the time. Um. We see this right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you can get someone to care about Sarah, <laughs> you know. Um, and and telling these stories of of people of individual the universal is specific again going back to the moonlight example and telling these stories of people who are doing their best to be a human in a world that makes it very difficult to do so, and is experiencing these base level of emotions that we all are very intimate with in ways that we may not understand, but we understand what's the heart that's behind it and understanding, Oh, that person is, is like me. Yeah. And we got, a, I got a lot that's of phone calls point. when I was at story of people calling and, and they would say after, you know, we had an interview between a, a trans man and um, you know, his neighbor. Someone would call and literally say, you know, I, I didn't know what that was or I thought, you know, these people were weird. I thought this, that, the other. And listening to this mm-hmm. interview, I was crying by the end because I under—I understand mm-hmm. him. I understand that person. And what they're saying is I under, mm-hmm. we share the same emotional uh, color wheel, you know, and I understand now that that yeah. person is doing the best they can in this world just like I am. And so mm-hmm. the projects that I choose to work on are, are – what I feel will be vehicles for that and that yeah. someone will see and go, Oh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I yeah. get it in a way that I, I didn't before. You're right. When we did the lynching yeah. in America project, we were tasked with, we, it basically started, it was like a PDF of data, you know? Um, and we were really tasked with And EJ. I had done mm. tremendous, tremendous research and work and, and, and figuring out um, these lynchings that had happened that were previously undocumented and the, the families behind them and the people behind them. And they had like this Rolodex of people of the descendants of lynching victims and then they had this data. And we were tasked with, uh, this is when I was at Google, they had partnered with EGA and given them, given them this grant um, to start the Peace and Justice Institute in Montgomery. And also how do we bring this information to life? How do we get this to as many people as possible? Which is really hard Mm -hmm. when you're talking about lynching because no one wants to talk about lynching. I don't. You don't. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a party conversation. Mm. It's not a. You know, it's like, you want to talk about lynching. You're like, what? No, like that's terrible, right? Black people don't want to talk about it. White people don't want to talk about it. It's it's a you know terrible stain uh, on this country that is is still happening. But you know, how do we how do we talk about it? How do we talk about it in a way that people can hear it? Um, Mm -hmm. Because. And, and something that seems very long ago and far away. Again, you bring this up, you bring up slavery. The first thing that many people say is that, especially white people, that has nothing to do with me. Right? These are my ancestors. Mm-hmm. You, you were never a slave. I was never a slave. We were, let's move on. Let's get past it. Mm-hmm. So this was the challenge before us. And by the thought was, I, I ended up spending uh, like four months in the South going back and forth between New York and rural well, South and a minivan with a couple of other people interviewing these descendants of lynching, uh, victims. And the thought was to bring it to the present to see, you know, these ripple effects of these generations that are still being affected today. And these people who again are, are people and have their stories to tell and have, you know, that emotional connection that I can understand. If I don't understand lynching, if I don't understand slavery, if I don't understand, um you know what this means i can at least understand that person and and hear hear their story and i think that was really effective um <laughs> I took the, it's. It's really funny because I'm not a horror person. I don't usually write drama. I don't watch. I have. To, I was telling in my interview. I was so sure I did not get the job because in my interview I was like, listen, I don't watch horror movies. Um, I have two older brothers who terrorized me. One of them convinced me Freddy Krueger lived in our attic. Um, the other one <laughs> hid under my bed. <laughs> and, oh and I mean, the <laughs> and waited for me to get home from school and then he grabbed my ankles when I sat down on the bed.
0: Oh my god. Okay. So, that is so fucked up. I might have done
1: something. <laughs> I mean, that's terrible who would do that. <laughs> um and so I remember and like, you know
0: In the interview. That's amazing. Yeah. And I was like, like no, I don't do horror. Yeah, I and I
1: and I got the job. Um but um I I took and I took the job because I wanted to have fun because I had Mm -hmm. been working on so many traumatic shows. I worked on another show called 61st street. That's going to be out next year on AMC. That's about police corruption. Um, I worked on Mm -hmm. another show um, that didn't get, that didn't get greenlit. um, But it also had sort of a, this trauma element to it. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of times that is, you know, when people, people more often than not do not call black writers for, as you might say, like the fun shit, right. For the astronaut mm-hmm. stories for, yeah. you know, the fantastical, like let's use our imaginations, which is why every writer gotten to is doing what they're doing, which is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Cause I love to use my imagination. I don't want to fucking talk about mm-hmm. trauma all the time. I want to talk about, I definitely <laughs> don't want to talk about racial trauma Tell all the time. About it. <laughs> um, yeah. And, but these are the jobs more often than not that, that we get offered because somebody thinks of a story that they think that they want to tell and they go, Oh, we probably should have a black person in the room. If not to hear their Mm. opinion, to say that they had a black person in the room. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So a lot of times, you know, this is kind of just what's, what's on the, what's on the docket. Um, And in this case, like I said, I, I wanted to use, and, and it's funny that this this shows, like, also David Makes Man was so there's so much trauma, but it was so joyful because of the people that I was with, and because mm. being in a black room, we didn't have that thing, we weren't explaining ourselves to each other, we weren't, yeah. um, you know, we could just be, and like we laugh so much, and that we're talking about like our deepest childhood wounds, and we're laughing so much because we're with family and people who understand. Um, which was Mm. really a blessing. The, The hard, when I'm working on these traumatic shows, the hardest part is working with people that I feel that I have to explain myself to, I have to defend myself against. When I'm explaining why this particular point in history was painful, when I'm explaining how you know these things that people associate with the past and with racial terror are still happening and this is mm-hmm. the reason that i think that this particular point should be in the script because this is my lived experience and i have to give a ted talk on why that's exhausting that's traumatic yeah. that's what i you yeah. know um <laughs> <laughs> seriously
0: that makes sense yeah totally um
1: oh. you know the story itself usually usually is not so it's, yeah, it's funny that you bring up Horror Story because even though it's, you know, people dying, again, it's not, um, it's not real, <laughs> right? It's, <Yeah>. it's horror.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I um, it's interesting to me, not having seen what you're doing on American Horror Story yet, and not watching the show at all, yes. <laughs> to be honest, because <laughs> I'm i scared. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> There's, and I love that you describe it as like the fun project in comparison yeah. to everything that you worked on. Um, thinking of that third episode of, of the Underground Railroad, I, I don't, I, I almost wonder if these people that hired you, it's not a stretch and no leap to to connect like the potential for horror uh, to that, even that work on that episode. Yeah. And, and I would say even the third episode from the three that i've seen the first three episodes of the series there's something there's a level of horror in that absolutely episode that is is it's like beyond the first two um but all of them hold it you know yeah. the story does the reality does um so I, I can't help but kind of almost wonder if there is a way that this, the trajectory that connects actually strongly, <laughs> not just to the fun, but the like, you do know horror yeah. and you do write it well, you know? It's
1: true. That is one way of looking at it. Mm. That's very true. But I think it's more in thinking about story. So I remember I was in a room and in the show, we had a character who was, um, because what what you ha- what I'm constantly having to do is understand why people do things so that will get us to the next thing that they do, right? This is how plot mm. unfolds and unravels. This mm-hmm. thing happens, and this is how I react to the thing happening. Why am I reacting like this? Mm-hmm. Because of something that happened when I was four, right? So <laughs> we have this character um, who... In her life, everybody close to her had either died or been taken away. And we had a scene in which, um, and this is like a, a really mundane example, but we had a scene in which she slept with this guy. She had been friends with this, with this person for a while and she slept with him and you know, the next morning. And we were saying like what was being pitched, what was on the table was that this person, you know, she woke up and she's so happy because finally she has this person that she's been friends with. She knows him. She trusts him. You know, she wanted to be intimate with him. She got her chance. And so now she's, we're trying to gauge where her mood would be waking up and rolling over and seeing this person. And it's like, Oh, everybody was like, of course, she's overjoyed. Right. Uh And I was like, no, she's out of there. (laughs) Are you kidding me? She's fucking
0: out of there. You like say it. That's a moment like where everybody's like, oh, she's stoked. Yeah. And you're like, no, 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 everybody. (laughs) That's not how being a human works, right? Right. She she
1: has a history of abandonment. She has a history. She's scared of intimacy because everyone, we just, Mm -hmm. for the past four episodes, we've established that everybody in her life has been taken Mm -hmm. away from her somehow, in some way, Mm -hmm. real or imagined. So there, mm-hmm. no way, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I remember, and, and in, in that moment, thinking about a situation that I had been in where I had been friends with someone for a long time, had a, we opened up to each other. We had a crush on each other. Like when I was, I was mm-hmm. dating someone for years and then we finally broke up. And this person that I had been friends with the whole time we were dating, you know, was basically like, I've had a crush on you this entire time. I was like, oh my God, I had a crush on you this entire time. And I was like dating someone or whatever. Um, we spent a weekend together and then he disappeared. Mm -hmm. And I was so hurt and so confused by for so long. We're friends now again, it's fine, but I was so hurt and so confused for so long. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And in that moment, in that, in the writer's room, and this is years later in the moment in that room on the show, making that connection, I was like, Oh, that's what happened. Mm. Like it all kind of clicked
0: for me. (laughs)
1: <laughs> in that moment, and so it mm. it made it a good pitch, um, <laughs> which you know made it a good episode. Will you
0: back that I mean would that that'd be something you'd say here's let me tell you how it literally goes in a in a pitch like that sometimes would you be like, this is what happens and here yeah sometimes totally if it you feel like it supports yeah the argument mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I mm. mean, and that is why you know when you're in a writer's room, you're with these people. and and precedent at times, you know, eight to 10 hours a day. And you were literally in a room staring at each other. There's no, it's not like, you know, a corporate job where you can like fuck off on Facebook or whatever for like Mm -hmm. 10 minutes of every hour. Like you were, there's no distractions. Uh There's no, some rooms they don't Uh allow cell phones. Like you were sitting there staring at each other, making up people and motivations. And so we're Uh all constantly talking about personal experience. Cause that's what we have, mm. you know, that's what we have to go on. And in some rooms, like I said, in David makes man, everybody, we just like from jump. And I, I owe this to my showrunners, D Harris, Lawrence and, and Terrell McCraney that made it a place where we felt comfortable to do that. And they, mm. they said on the first day, D was like, this is safe space. And then she then acted like it. And, mm-hmm. and that's how we got the truth, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, other rooms, I'm, I'm, and, and those people know everything about me. They know everyone I've ever dated. They know about, like, my parents, my childhood. Like, seriously, yeah. you know? And it, and yeah. it's like summer camp. You know, you used to go to camp, and then these are, like, you know, you're bonded for life because you had this, like, intense mm-hmm. experience with these people, you know? And, like, whether whatever happens after camp, it's, like, you're always going to have that thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and in some rooms that aren't, it's, like, I don't really need to tell you, like, my life story um, yeah, but you are, but you are putting your shit out there. You know, you have to. Mm-hmm. You have to.
0: Uh, is it like a very sort of, kind of like? Can it be really emotional? I mean, yeah. imagine sometimes with this stuff coming out, it's like someone's breaking down when they're in the middle of trying to pitch or work out a scene. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah.
1: There. 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 There are tears. Had...
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: <laughs> There are absolute tears. Does that always
0: feel like a being close to like something truthful when that occurs, you know, like we're in the heart of something that, that really matters and, and towards the show, but also like between each other, obviously.
1: Yeah. You know, um, you know, when people are telling the truth, there's actually this article speaking of, of of death. So Michael K Williams, um, passed away a a Mm -hmm. couple days ago, I guess at this point, Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you're familiar with him. Amazing,
2: am. amazing,
1: brilliant actor. Um, that one, it, mm-hmm. like, really hurt actually when I found out that news. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. And I read an article. Uh, I'll send it to you where he was talking about working on the wire, and how it actually caused. You know, he had battled with addiction for a lot of his life, and and working on the on the wire cause him to relapse because you're in the, you're in it, you know, whether you're an actor or, or you're a writer, you are in it and you're yeah. in the character, you're in the scene, you're in the world, you know, and you're, and we're dealing with trauma. We're dealing with these very painful things, especially as black people, being black in America is in, inherently traumatic. No one gets mm-hmm. out unscathed. And, and then they say cut, and you go home. And what do you do with that? You know, mm-hmm. and you're just filled with all of this, all of this. Emo- if you're anybody worth their salt, is drawing on everything they've ever felt their entire lives to create what is ultimately entertainment for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and and part of the reason The Wire was such a brilliant show. Um, you know, it's brilliant from a writer, like as a craft, but it's so brilliant because it told so many truths and it went to so many places Mm -hmm. that had never been, people had never dared to go before. Um, and these, these characters that were complex and, and, you know, making choices (laughs) and doing what they have to do and who, who were living and surviving in a world that did didn't want them to, which is again, the experience of so many Black people. And so, you know, Michael Kay was talking about, you know, what that did and what that does and how, you know, when we are, you know, working in these realms, we really have to take care of ourselves and we have to take care of each other because this shit is, you know, these emotions, these feelings, these experiences are are, are real and it doesn't just go away after the writer's room or. You know, yeah. after the, the camera stopped rolling, like we have to deal with this. This is in, if it, if I'm putting it on the page, that means it's inside of me, you know? Um, yeah. And, and I think a lot of people, I know a lot of people do not take that into consideration, <laughs> you know? Um, for sure. And it has consequences. Mm-hmm. It has consequences.
0: So if you want to check out more from Allison Davis you can go to her website. It's allison davis. Allison with two L's, A L L I S O N davis.com and per usual all the links to equal justice initiative, lynching in America, Allison Davis's website, all the things um, I'll pop up in the liner notes for you listeners. Nick Jana, how are you? I'm great. Good to have you um, here, voice to voice. Uh, I know that mid-production, mid-editing of this particular episode, you texted me excitedly because you are a writer and you love this episode for the focus on writing. Is there any particular thing about the episode's conversation that stood out to you that you can think of now on this side?
3: Yeah, you know, the the first thing people learn about writing is write what you know, and mm-hmm. I think that it's important to take that in the sense of write emotionally what you know. It doesn't mm-hmm. literally have to be write about someone with the same exact life as yours, but write from the emotional perspective that you can relate to. So, and, and that just becomes this kind of truth detector when you're trying to figure out in fiction what a character does and how they get through a situation. So the situation Allison was describing about why somebody left without saying something or got freaked out about a relationship. Right. And whether, whether that was realistic or not, like it just seemed like she could just feel it in her bones of like, Oh no, this is, (laughs) this is how this would go. And this is how somebody would react. I know it doesn't seem rational or kind or whatever those things are, but I've been in this exact situation, maybe on both sides of it. And I know what that feels like, you know, to me, that's such an important aspect of writing. What you know is like feeling in your gut yeah, I I can't even explain this necessarily, but this is what people do sometimes, you know, people freak out and they
0: do uh, irrational things. Well, you know what I, before you even had told me how you felt about working on the episode because of the writing focus, um, I was thinking about you and conversations we'd had about your book, Hitomi, especially, uh, because I think it must be And and I kind of remember us talking about this, but it must be a little of both. It must be a little bit of like what could happen here because I've lived a version of it and sourcing your own emotional experience, literal history, your life history to see how a moment would unfold uh, authentically like it through truth, but also coupled with uh, these people are telling and doing things and I'm just the conduit kind of bringing it down onto the page. Uh, you know that it 's a combo of that was i mean it may be an well certainly must be an oversimplification of the work, but do you feel those elements happening?
3: I probably did it backwards, but I started with the truth I started with as many true stories as I could, and then putting a little bit of fiction like fiction becomes really uh contagious or <laughs> it it like breeds more fiction because it becomes its own truth, it alters you know the characters become real characters, and then they need their own outcomes and their own wills and their own fears, and that changes the true story that you tried to make into something that's truer for the fictional world. Mm. Um, And I I didn't understand that at first, but I started with this scaffolding of true stories that then got almost completely Ah. squeezed out by fictional stories, kind of in the same cities or venues or places and situations, but like just totally different because I'm like, well, now that I know this character they would do something totally different, you know, than what happened for me or whatever. And it's not even to to make it more dramatic. Sometimes it's often to make it less dramatic because true stories
0: sound made up. (laughs) Yeah. I I wonder, I guess my specific, like my general question is like, what is grief in relationship to you getting a book done like Hitomi? And that could be grief like that you're working through in the story. But also I wonder about grief as relationship to what you're writing. Uh, like for example, when the book's done and letting it go, like the grief of finishing a book, if there is such a thing, um, that's my first mm-hmm. question. Um, mm-hmm. and then the second one is, have you ever just been writing part of a story? Cause I have moments of getting emotional, reading your book, crying and laughing out loud and crying out loud. And, uh, uh, I wonder if while you write ever, do you just like burst into tears?
3: Oh yeah. Which is an amazing, (laughs) it's an amazing thing to, you know, as it's normally conceived, you invent characters and you make up things for them and then you love them so much that you're sad if they get hurt. It's actually one of the Mm -hmm. hardest things in fiction is to like have something bad happen to your characters Mm because you love them. And um, yeah, the grief of, closing that door on the characters when it is like you're the only one who's talking to them and they're in this other world when that when you feel that portal closing because the project is ending it's a it's a big grief you don't get Mm -hmm. to hang out with those characters anymore Mm. you can't it's not as simple as just meeting them for tacos you know Mm -hmm. like they're it's it's for this specific purpose and um if you did try to extend that window maybe <laughs> maybe people would start to worry about you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm hanging out with my characters of my novel. I'm not writing a sequel, I'm just hanging out with them. <laughs> yeah,
0: literally daily short stories just to be with them.
3: But I also hang out with stuffed animals and have tea parties with them, so.
0: Yeah, so it's it's all good. Uh mm-hmm. yeah, thanks. I appreciate all that. How about how about a death deck card? Let's do it. Do you want to do a multiple choice, Nick, or do you want to do just the straight question? I like the straight questions. I don't want to be fenced in. But Nick doesn't like being fenced in. So we're going with an open-ended answer option. Uh, everybody, The Death Deck, as you know, this episode sponsored by The Death Deck. You can go to their website, thedeathdeck.com, and use our discount code YG2D to get $5 off your own Death Deck. And today's question this episode's question is I just drew this message from beyond is the title. If you could send, no, I'm starting to like it already, just because just imagining what you're going to say, I'm already liking it. <laughs> if you could send one post death message from beyond, what would you tell your family?
3: <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, what format this message would come. And, you know, to where they're like, they're certain that it's from me and just the, uh, the temptation to make it like funny <laughs> and, and, and like really small.
0: <laughs> yeah.
3: You know, like, yeah. don't, don't forget the, the salmon in the freezer, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, But seriously, I think the thing that everyone wants to know is just, what's it like, you know, is it okay over mm. there, out there? beyond you know so whatever i could report from that um would probably be something like no i'm not like describing the the wallpaper no i know but
0: just (laughs) because they're really wallpaper there
3: (laughs) i don't know and it's it's imagining what i would feel in that realm so i don't know but like i'd imagine i'd want to say something like it's 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 like nothing you could prepare for and it's okay and it's beautiful and you know just based yeah. off of what I've heard people report from the edges of that experience. Mm-hmm. I think the most comforting thing to hear in that moment would just be like, it, it's, it's being enveloped in love forever and I'm not in pain and just, just go for it. <laughs> not go for dying, but go for living, you know,
0: <laughs> do it now. Like, don't waste another second. Um, yeah, that sounds right. I reminds me of the, it's okay message from, uh, that I talked about in Rachel Cusick's episode. Um,
3: And I I had this moment the other day that, cause Chelsea was hosting a memorial service and in the morning she was, I was making her breakfast and she was picking out clothes. And I just had this moment where I was looking at her and I just pictured the day that she would get ready for my memorial service and how the mundanity, like I was so struck by the mundanity of she's still going to have to have breakfast and she's still going to have to pick out an outfit, you know, like the way that, the world doesn't stop <laughs> and little things still have to happen even when you're gone and how beautiful and heartbreaking that is, you know, I, I was just like, got. I actually wrote a poem about that because it just was so beautiful. And I think to address that and to just say like, it's okay to choose an outfit and, you know, care about little things and keep going, you know, like, like mm-hmm. your inclination would be just to like give up on everything and just like, bucket. I'm not going to try anymore, you know, Mm -hmm. but just some like encouragement that that's okay. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Thanks. How about you? That's my answer. Okay. It is. The it's okay thing is, is especially meaningful to me. And, and I relate to, to the near death experiences, people coming back from flatlining and saying how peaceful it felt and Mm -hmm. um you don't hear a lot actually different from that well I'm sure people have stories (laughs) of it being maybe not that but mostly Mm -hmm. you hear like it's some version of it's okay and that's what I would want my kids to know and my wife to know um yeah I almost even think like it's okay is a message about everything. You know, the ways we've had shortcomings when we were alive and maybe let people down or didn't weren't in the present moment enough or like the it's okay even wouldn't even be just to say it's okay here. It's yeah. like it's all okay, like truly yeah. and and that I'm okay and I'm not suffering over missed opportunity or regrets like it is just like this big message of like loving okayness that i would want to yeah. communicate you know that yeah. covers all yeah. the things
3: we all did our best with what we mm-hmm. knew at the time and,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and really like feeling it and meaning it like a medicine the death deck everybody go to the death deck.com. use our discount code yg2d nick d Nick, have a great goddamn rest of your trip, buddy. (laughs) You deserve it. Thanks, man. Get this episode done, though, in a timely fashion, please. (laughs) (laughs) Go ye. It's Uh, not okay. (laughs) Yeah, your message, it's not okay. Uh, Thanks (laughs) for listening, everybody. We're real grateful for all of you and real glad to be in your ear. Until next time, bye, Nick. Bye. Bye, everybody.